Hello, and welcome to World History with Professor Roll. Now, if you're watching this as a YouTube video, you'll probably see that I've got uh, a little buddy with me here today. This is my son Camden, Camden Clay, is hanging out with us. Our topic today is Central Asia, a vast and crucial part of the world that often gets left out of introductory discussions of world history, but which we are going to find today has a rich and important past that has affected the rest of the world in numerous ways. I'm your host, Dr. Daryl Roll, former trash man, lumberjack and IT consultant, but now a professor of history, archaeology, and digital humanities at Calvin University. Now, you may be watching or listening because you're enrolled in one of my courses, because another teacher or professor has assigned or recommended this, or you may have just stumbled upon my YouTube channel or podcast due to your personal interest in history or archaeology. Whatever the reason may be, I'm really delighted that you're here, and I hope that you'll find today's episode interesting and worthwhile. That was a good start, right? Good. All right. So, again, our topic today is Central Asia. In the next half hour or so, we're going to explore this region's geography, its varied environments, some of the animals that have shaped so much of Asian, um, Central Asian life. And we're also going to chart out some of the key developments in Central Asia's past, social organization, from the earliest evidence for humans to the end of the medieval period. Now, we don't have a lot of time, so this is going to be necessarily selective and somewhat oversimplified. Hopefully, though, it will serve as a useful introduction to this part of the world and its broad historical significance. Now, if you've been following along with this lecture series as part of one of my history courses at Calvin University, or you've just been following along um, because of your personal interest, you will know by now that these lectures are designed as a companion to the free open access textbook, World History, Cultures, States, and Societies, the 1500, which comes from the University of North Georgia Press. Now, we're focusing in on Central Asia in this lecture, which is covered in Chapter 11 of this particular book. And if you've watched or listened to my earlier China-slash-East Asia lecture, you'll already know that Chinese history has been long linked to the history of Central Asia, with a largely sedentary, permanently settled Chinese or East Asian society building walls and alliances to protect against the threat of a nomadic um, population, the nomadic raiders from the Central Asian steppe. And we learned in that lecture that even before China's first emperor, Qin Shuangdi, unified the warring states around 220 BC, that those warring states had already been constructing walls of protection from each other. That is, one Chinese state would build walls to protect itself from other Chinese states. But they were also building walls in order to protect themselves against nomads from Central Asia, who would routinely raid their settlements. Now, once the Emperor Qin successfully ended the warring between these various Chinese states and united them into China's first empire under his sole rule, he proceeded to connect many of these walls together as a major barrier against the remaining threat 
those Central Asian nomads. And we also learned how almost 1,500 years later, 1,500 years after the time of the Emperor Qin, despite all the great walls that were designed to keep them out by various dynasties, the Central Asian Mongols, led at this time by Kublai Khan, would succeed in taking over all of China, establishing China's Yan Dynasty, and this dynasty would be the would would serve as the first time in all of Chinese history that all of China would come under the rule of foreign invaders. And the Mongols who ruled the Yuan Dynasty, they would rule over China for about a hundred years before they were ultimately expelled, and the succeeding Ming Dynasty would once again engage in massive wall building, constructing much of what we recognize today as the so-called Great Wall of China. Now for the Ming, who had just expelled foreign rulers from Central Asia, keeping out these nomadic raiders or invaders became especially important because they had just um, come off of 100 years of that 1,500 or more years worth of wall building, um, ultimately proving to, to, to verify that, yes, those nomads across the wall um, were a threat because they had just invaded and ruled for an entire century. Um, this is part of the reason why the Ming Dynasty was so intent upon building um, the Great Wall as we know it today. And we also learned at the end of that lecture that ultimately China's Great Wall um, remained ineffective once again. Um, and that Ming Dynasty that built so much of what we recognize as the Great Wall today ultimately comes to an end around A.D. 1644 when the Chinese general Wu Sangui declares himself the new emperor and invites and opens up the Great Wall um, to Manchu, to a Manchu army, um, so that they can come and support his claim to be the new emperor. Um, but ultimately, these Manchus that he invited uh, in, that he opened the Great Wall to, um, they turned on him and go on to establish their own dynasty, the Qing dynasty. Um, that actually rules over China until 1912 AD, so um, a little over a century ago. So there are definitely really strong multi-millennial links between the history of China or wider East Asia and that of Central Asia. And with this understanding in mind, let's now turn to Central Asia itself. We're going to start by thinking about Central Asia's geography. So Central Asia is incredibly diverse, and it's an often overlooked part of the world. It sits in between China to the east, India to the south, Russia to the north, and the Middle East and Eastern Europe on the west. And within this, this really massive space, Central Asia features three distinctive topographical and ecological zones. And 
Before I get to those topographical and ecological zones, I just want to briefly highlight some of those modern countries that sit within Central Asia. Um, parts of them are actually part of, of modern-day China today, but it also includes Mongolia, Kazakhstan, uh, um, uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, um, uh, Afghanistan. Um, also, uh, part of it can be included in Central Asia, um, Tibet. Um, so it's a pretty vast territory. And within this vast territory, it features these three distinctive topographical and ecological zones. First, the highlands, dominated by the Himalayas, the Hindu Kush, and the Tibetan Plateau. And this Tibetan Plateau is sometimes called the Roof of the World because it stands over three miles above sea level and is surrounded by imposing mountain ranges that harbor the world's two highest summits, Mount Everest and K2. Um, you probably heard of, of at least one of those, if not both. Um, and the Tibetan Plateau is the world's highest and largest plateau with an area of nearly a million square miles. And just to put that into perspective, that's about five times the size of France, um, just there in that Tibetan plateau part of Central Asia. The second of these distinct topographical and ecological zones for Central Asia are deserts, including most famously the Gobi Desert. And this is a rain shadow desert. It's formed by the fact that the Tibetan plateau blocks precipitation or, or rainfall from the Indian Ocean. So as um, uh, water um, uh, comes in, um, uh, the, the rains come down from the Indian Ocean all across India. It starts to spread. As that is spreading to the north and the northeast, um, those rains hit the Himalayan mountain range. And those then kind of prevent, um, uh, with the Tibetan Plateau, it prevents that rainfall from actually hitting um, to the north of it. And then the Gobi Desert, as a result, um, really gets very little rain. The third key ecological zone is what we would call the steppes. And the steppes stretch across almost all of Central Asia to the north of the primary highland and desert zones. And steppes, and this is spelled S-T-E-P-P-E-S, um, steppes are characterized by grassland plains without trees, apart from those that lie near rivers and lakes. And we could think about the prairie of North America, um, especially the short grass mixed prairie, um, as an example of a steppe. But we don't usually use this term, steppe, to refer to the American prairie zone, um, although in many ways they, they, it meets the definition. Okay? So steppe areas may be semi-arid or covered with grass or shrubs, or perhaps both, um, depending on the season and the latitude. So it does have um, vegetation, um, but it tends to be 
low-lying vegetation of grass or low shrubbery. And the climate in these areas are too dry to support forests, but not dry enough to be deserts. And in some places, both in antiquity and much more so in recent decades, the Central Asian steppe has been put to use for some serious agricultural production, as we can see with extensive wheat cultivation on the plains of modern-day Kazakhstan. So now that we've explored a little bit of the you know, ecological zones, the physical environment geography of Central Asia, let's now spend the rest of our time focusing a bit on the kinds of animals that were so important to Central Asian society. We'll then move on to a brief and admittedly simplified overview of how Central Asian society was organized for much of its history. And I'll then spend um, a few minutes going over um, some key dates and developments um, in Central Asian history from the earliest evidence that we have up to the establishment of Kublai Khan's Yuan Dynasty over China. Animals. Animals have been huge in Central Asia. For thousands of years, much of Central Asian life has revolved around nomadic pastoralism. Nomadic pastoralism is a lifestyle where people move around. They don't necessarily have permanent settlements. Um, they are engaged in pastoralism, the raising and upkeep of animals, um, particularly herded animals. Um, and nomadic pastoral peoples will... Um, their primary life, their primary work is the raising of these animals. And then they move around through the seasons to find the best places where they can have um, uh, food and water to keep these animals um, thriving. And for this, these thousands of years in Central Asia, the most important animals have been first sheep. Um, and caracal sheep are actually probably the best known of Central Asian sheep breeds. They're named after a city in modern-day Uzbekistan, and they're thought, due to archaeological evidence, to have been bred continuously since at least 1400 BC. Now, there are other breeds of sheep and goat that were almost certainly bred even earlier. Um, and hailing from the desert regions of Central Asia, Caracal sheep are renowned for their ability to forage and thrive under really extremely harsh living conditions, such as the Central Asian deserts and steppes. They can survive severe drought conditions because of a special quality that they have, which is storing fat in their tails. And in periods where there's just not much food to, to be had, um, they can actually survive by breaking down the energy that is stored in those fatty tails of theirs. The second major animal type uh, that's important to Central Asian life is cattle, particularly the yak, which has been kept for thousands of years, primarily for their milk, fiber in terms of the, uh, um, the coating that they have, and as beasts 
of burden as well as for meat. Additional uh, value that cattle um, and yaks have given uh, to Central Asian society is that their dried droppings or poo are also a really important fuel that have been used in fires and continue to be used in Central Asian fires today. The third major animal type is horses. And something that you may be surprised to learn is that it was in Central Asia that horses were first domesticated. In recent DNA studies of horse bones found in archaeological context and from more than 300 wild horses living in eight different countries across Europe and Asia have confirmed that the domestication of horses occurred in the western part of the Central Asian steppe, in the grasslands that straddle, in modern terms, the Ukraine, southwest Russia, and Kazakhstan, about 6,000 years ago, so around 4,000 BC. And not only were horses used for riding, but again, they also were used as a sort of meat and milk. And the fourth category of animals um, are camels, um, a notab noticeably different species of camel than those that we know from Arabia. Um, Central Asia's camels are called Bactrian camels, from an area that archaeologists call the Bactria Margiana Archaeological Complex, a Bronze Age culture of Central Asia that dates back to about 2200 to 1700 BC, located in present-day eastern Turkmenistan, northern Afghanistan, southern Uzbekistan, and western Tajikistan. The more familiar camel, called the dromedary camel, the um, that you're you may be more familiar with, is less hairy and only features one hump, while the Central Asian Bactrian camel tends to be darker brown in color and features two large humps. The Bactrian camel is thought to have been domesticated, independent of the dromedary camel, sometime before 2500 BC. In northeast Afghanistan and southwestern Turkestan. And the dromedary camel, on the other hand, is believed to have been domesticated between 4000 BC and 2000 BC in Arabia, so probably quite a bit earlier. But as pack animals, Bactrian camels are virtually unsurpassed. They are able to carry between 370 to 550 pounds at a rate of 30 miles per day or two miles per hour over a period of four days. So Bactrian camels are also frequently ridden, and they've often been used to pull chariots and wagon. Now, as our main textbook says, the tribesmen of Central Asia divided their society into five strata. So here we're thinking about the historical social order of Central Asian society which is divided into five key strata or, or, or levels, hierarchies of, um, of society. And members of the royal tribal clan presided over the social order. So that's kind of the first tier, royal tribal clan. And this dominant group 
ended up bestowing its name on the tribal confederation, a collection of tribes, and positioned below them were their allies and associated tribes. So you have the royal tribal clan, then their allies and associated tribes, and below them are the common herders who didn't directly participate in struggles for power. These are the people who are herding all of those animals that we just talked about. The sheep, the cattle, the horses, the camels. And lower still, and this is something that could be quite surprising to people and actually is really surprising in comparison with some of the societies we've explored in other parts of the world, um, are the artisans, people like blacksmiths and leather workers. Um, and it's really really surprising that we find these skilled artisans um, actually being lower down the pecking order um, than herders um, or farmers, for example. Um, and finally, the fifth and final category, the, the lowest strata in Central Asian society were those of enslaved peoples. Slaves, um, uh, who are usually acquired, um, they acquire their lowly position in society because they've been captured in times of war. Now, dozens or even hundreds of individual tribal units roamed across the Central Asian landscape, and they had loose and shifting confederations of tribes that worked in association with each other. Um, and uh, allied or confederated tribes could really easily become major enemies. And the relationships between different tribal groups were complex and shifted back and forth with great regularity. And for millennia, dating back at least as far as around AD 280, the leading chief or ruler of an individual tribe was known as a Khan. But in reality, we really don't know when or where this term comes from. So the origins of that term, that title Khan, um, remains uncertain. Um, it's a title for tribal rulers at least as old as about 280 AD when we first start seeing it used. And the closely related title of Kagan was also developed to refer to particularly successful chiefs who had come to rule over larger tribal confederacies or empires in which multiple tribal groups were united under a dominant tribal chief, the Kagan, the Great Khan. And as our main textbook indicates, rulers who bore the title Kagan were charismatic monarchs who often laid claim to some sort of divine providence. So once again, we're seeing something akin to the mandate of heaven that we saw in China, but also to the idea that the rulers that we have in um, ancient Mesopotamia tended to be priest kings, and the pharaohs in Egypt were also um, uh, messengers, representatives, even divine beings themselves. And throughout Roman history, 
we would see, um, particularly by the time we hit the Roman Empire, we see rulers um, associating themselves with divinity, either as being divine themselves or as being representatives of the divine order. So Kagan made use of personal charisma as well as political and military smarts in order to maintain group cohesion and to ward off challenges to their authority. And under strong Kagans, tribal confederations were capable of wielding incredible power. But more often than not, they were notoriously volatile and often imploded upon the death of their leader, collapsing into a brutal struggle for power. And the winners in the struggle forced the losers out of the area. And while many ended up going to the north or south, most um, of the losers ended up moving off to the west. And it's these people moving off to the west um, uh, that we see recorded over and over again in Greek and Roman um, sources as some of those barbarians coming into the West. So um, as the Roman Empire begins to fall in the West, it's largely under the weight of um, formerly nomadic peoples from the Central Asian steppe that are being pushed out of the Central Asian steppe further and further West by um, uh, the winners, these Kagans that are um, constantly fighting for dominance. Um, of Central Asia. Now, although the Khaganate was a diarchy or a system of dual ruler with the oldest son controlling half of the land, it lacked a clear transition of power like hereditary succession because the Khagan theoretically ruled over a series of tribal confederations. Any member of the tribal confederation could ascend to the position of monarch by demonstrating their personal charisma and martial skills on the battlefield. And this often resulted in a fight to prove oneself that could end up erupting into broader intertribal strife. Now, the title Khan was incredibly widespread, and with losing groups being constantly pushed off further and further south and west, they came to impinge on the territories of more Western civilizations, as I've already talked about. And the title of Khan is known from as far west as late antique and early medieval Hungary and Bulgaria, so there in Eastern Europe, within the bounds of modern-day Europe, south into late medieval and early modern Persia or Iran and India, and as we've already seen, in previous um, lectures, extending across most of East Asia to the Yuan or Mongol dynasty that controlled Mongolia and China in the 13th and 14th centuries. So now to try to conclude, um, I just want to highlight some key developments in uh, Central Asian society. It is really difficult to try to pick out the most essential events or developments in any society's past. Nevertheless, for a course in history, 
it is generally expected. So with all the detail that our textbook gives, I'd now like to spend just the next few minutes highlighting a handful of what I think are really important developments in Central Asian history. Now, if you're in a course with me, these are the dates and developments about Central Asia that you may be expected to know when it comes time for a quiz um, or an exam. So we'll just start out with um, as early as we can possibly go. Around 4500 BC, as far as we know, Homo sapiens have reached Central Asia. And then by 5000 BC, we've got the first known pottery production. 4500 BC, we've got the first known agricultural settlements. So here we're talking about the Neolithic Revolution, if you will. Um, uh, and these are happening in the western part of Central Asia, around the Caspian Sea, uh, in an area that has been identified as the possible origins of the Indo-European languages. Um, uh, this is disputed. Um, we don't know for sure where the Indo-European languages originated, um, but this is one of the main um, kind of contenders for that claim. And it's not long after we have those first known agricultural settlements happening that we get um, in 4000 BC the domestication of the horse. And again, this is happening there in Western Central Asia, um, very near the place where we would have the um, uh, those first known agricultural settlements of Central Asia. Um, and about three 3,000 years later, so around 1000 BC, this is when um, pastoral nomadism becomes the dominant lifestyle. And this is interesting because um, while this is the lifestyle that we know of as being um, kind of the, the defining characteristic of Central Asia, um, from the time of 4500 BC and uh, that domestication of the horse, this, this wasn't um, a largely pastoral nomadic um, society. Um, the horses become huge elements in that pastoral nomadism, but it takes thousands of years before pastoral nomadism becomes the kind of de facto way of life within Central Asia. And about 200 years later, in 800 BC, we get a people group called the Scythians. And the Scythians are well known to us from uh, Greek texts. And the Scythians come to dominate Western Central Asia. Again, it's that same area around the Caspian Sea are these um, people who had been part of those first known agricultural settlements who domesticated the horse that um, became transformed into pastoral nomads um, for a couple of hundred years and then and then start returning further west into um, the area uh, puts them into contact with those easternmost Greek colonies that we talked about in um, our Greek world lecture. 
And then um, about 600 years later, um, around 209 BC to 93 AD, um, we get the first known serious empire in Central Asia. This is the Shangnu Empire, which emerges and spreads out of Mongolia, pushing, again, others, including Huns and Turkic peoples, um, to the west and to the south. So the Shangnu, kind of a precursor to the Mongolians, as we'll know them, they end up pushing other people groups further and further and further away um, into Western and Southern Central Asia and, and even out of Central Asia altogether. Then the next major thing that I'd like you to know is um, around 670 AD, um, we have the beginnings of the spread of Islam in Central Asia. Now, in this course, um, if you're in History 151 with me, we will be talking about Islam uh, in, a, in a future week. Um, but this date here, 670 AD, is really quite early. It's within the first few decades of Islam as a major force. Um, and Central Asia begins to have converts to Islam really quite early on. And that's one of the most important things. And the final thing that I'd like you to know beyond what you've already learned in our um, East Asian lecture about Kublai Khan is that in the 13th century, um, between 1206 to 1227 AD, we have the unification and conquest of, of virtually all Central Asia under a ruler named Temujin. Temujin becomes a great Khan and then also is granted the title of Chinggis Khan. Um, it looks like it should be Genghis, um, and you'll often hear the word, the, the name pronounced as Genghis, um, but it's more correct pronunciation to be something like Chinggis. So Chinggis Khan is the grandfather of Kublai Khan, who we've already met. Um, Chinggis Khan, he is the one who, um, takes control over all of Mongolia, spreads east, spreads west, spreads north, spreads south, um, takes over all of Central Asia. And after his death, um, his successors would go on to knock on the doors of Eastern Europe. Um, there are medieval, um, chronicles that talk about the Mongolians attacking um, uh, into uh, uh, Eastern Europe. Um, and we also know from our study of East Asia that the Mongols under Chinggis's grandson Kublai Khan um, complete the invasion and conquest of China, um, creating really crucial links between Central Asia and East Asia and China. So that's all we have time for today. Um, there's been a lot of information here. I hope that it was um, uh, interesting. I hope if you've been reading along with us in the textbook that this helps to add a little bit of clarity, maybe a bit of expansion upon what you've read. Um, and if you are a student in one of my courses, um, do remember that anything in the textbooks 
um, are fair game for quizzes and tests, um, but that crucial clues to the types of things that I will be testing you on are the things that are not only in the textbook, but that are also covered in these lectures. So thanks again for joining us. Until next time, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Bye.